don't know if you've seen the episode of Andy Griffith where Andy trades his favorite fishing rod for a bed jacket for Aunt B. Um, these things define my childhood. I don't know about you guys, but my grandfather had that kind of rod, and that kind of fishing rod is interesting. It had in the reel there was a ball inside the reel that would spin, and as you would cast it out, the ball would kind of create energy, and it would you'd cast it, and the ball would kind of spin. And in order to stop it, you'd put your thumb on the ball, and so it was this really neat kind of deal. Well, anyway, it had, it was like you know one of the heirloom treasures of the Cummings family, and had gone lost and was found in an attic when I was probably about ten years old. And so, oh, this was the fishing rod. And so my, my granddad at the time was like, you know, I'm going to give this to my first grandson. Well, and he only had one son, so he was obviously the first grandson. But I get this fishing rod, and he's like, now it needs some work, and I want you to take it, and you can restore it and make it great again. You know, was, you know. I didn't know at that time, but things come to me to die. Things don't come to me to be revived and restored and receive life. Things come to me to die. And much like... The rest of the things I'm going to tell you, the fishing rod came to me to die. I took that reel apart. That was the first mistake. Second mistake was I didn't ask anybody to help. Third mistake, I put it back together, and I not only had one part left over after I put it together, most of the parts were still on the counter after I put it all together. And so I thought it was great. I took it to the river to go fishing, and I do the first cast, and literally half the reel detaches itself and flies into the water, which is impressive because it was held together by the actual fishing line. So I don't know what I did. Fast forward about 10 years in the future. I'm always on the look for a guitar, and so I'm in the guitar shop, and this guy that's the guitar tech says, oh, hey, listen, I heard you're looking for a guitar. I've got my guitar for sale in the used department. You know, this is just exactly the same scenario. It's, it's a great old guitar, it just needs some restoration. It just needs some work done on it. It just needs, just needs some TLC. And I looked at it, and the price was right. And I picked it up, and I took it home, and I took it apart, and I couldn't get it back together again. And then it fell apart on stage while I was playing it during a singles worship night, which was a great thing because obviously I, I thought I was married and had it all together, and I wasn't any more together than any of the people that were there looking for love in all the wrong places except for in Christian circles. And I'm glad that this, this, these two events kind of have colored me on the rest of my life. Because right now, Danielle and I are getting ready to be empty nesters. We've got, you know, the, one more year with, with our youngest daughter. And so we thought to ourselves, we actually want to live somewhere in the future where our kids might want to come visit us. So we're thinking about, you know, let's go out. Let's have somewhere in the country. Let's go somewhere. Maybe there's a stream running through it or something. Let's, let's have somewhere where our kids might come and visit us. And the thing that I have realized I have a phobia now is I am the exact opposite of Chip and Joanna Gaines. Where we see the house that is this incredible deal because the house needs to be completely gutted. The house needs to be completely redone. I kind of just go, nope can't do it. It'll never happen. I will mess that place up. It'll probably get burned down in our attempts to restore it. It's not going to happen. And, and I just don't have it in me. And I have this incredible respect for the person that sees the rusted old, you know, Mustang in someone's yard and says, I could fix that up. The person that sees the extreme fixer-upper house in the neighborhood and says, I could fix that up. And then we get to the penultimate example of this, which is the Lord who leads Ezekiel out into a valley of dry and dead bones. The reason it's they're dry, as if wet bones would be easier to work with, is to position the extreme helplessness of human effort up against the sovereign power of God. And he says, Ezekiel, you see this fixer-upper? 
is it doable? And Ezekiel answers, with humility and faith, Lord God, only you know the answer to this question. So we've gone to the place of Ezekiel where we have made now the turn from the promised destruction to the destruction to now the promises of restoration and hope. And so as you see in Jeremiah 38, Jeremiah 29, you're going to see these continuing things also through the book of Ezekiel of the hope, of the restoration, of the resurrection, of the bringing home, of the reuniting of God's people. And there's more of just this kind of hopeful atmosphere now that we're going to get through these texts. And so when we get to the Valley of Dry Bones, the other day I was at, uh, I was at something for Hannah, and, and, and I, the guy, there's a fellow that knew me, he said, hey, what are you preaching on? And I said, oh, I'm preaching the book of Ezekiel. We hadn't gotten to Ezekiel 37, but he said, oh, what are you going to do with chapter 37? And I realized that chapter 37 in Ezekiel is the thing that most people have actually heard of. And, and as Bob will tell you later on, they mostly heard it because it's the, and the hip bone connected to the thigh bone and the thigh bone, and hear the words of the Lord. And they know that. And they go, oh, that's somewhere in the Bible. I think it's in, a, it's in a prophet. Well, it's here in the Valley of the Dry Bones in Ezekiel chapter 37. And so this is a vision. This isn't actually, this isn't actually you know, he scooped him up and took him somewhere as the Holy Spirit does in, verse, in chapter uh, 3, verse 14, where he literally takes him and deposits him among the, uh, the, the exiles by the river Kibar. It's also not like in the book of Acts where Philip is actually picked up and taken away or Enoch is taken away or Elijah is picked up and taken away. This is a vision. And so in this vision, there is going to become a, there's going to come out of it a prophecy back to the people. And it's a prophecy that is not just about the physical nature of the land of Israel, but this is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, of the coming of the gospel. As Pastor Fyodor said on the video, the coming of the kingdom of God. And so let's look in your Bible, and we're going to start with verse 1, and I'll do this quickly so that we can get to Bob's application. But we want to go verse by verse just looking at what's going on in the text so you can kind of connect the dots to the gospel. It is, it is imperative that we as Christians can see that the gospel is not just this brand new thing that happened that had never been heard of before. The parts of the gospel have been coming and coming and coming, and the mercy and the grace and the resurrection has been coming and coming. So in verse 1, We've got the spiritual transportation, the spiritual vision. Same thing, same thing as it happened in, in 314, though that one was that was a physical, but this again, this is this is something that he's seeing. It's a vision that he's having. And realize that in verse one, well, there's an important part of that verse that we typically skip over, which is where were the bones? They were in a valley. They were in a valley. They weren't on a mountaintop. They weren't on a hillside. They weren't in a grove. They weren't in a forest. They were in a valley. And we even now we equate the valley with times of down. Times of even not much special. But a valley would have been a place where a battle would have been fought. A valley would have been a place where there would have been a struggle. A valley would have been the place where there might have very well been a desert. A valley would have been not the place, and the valley is always kind of equated in the Old Testament with a place of learning, with a place of wandering, with a place of testing. And so this is this valley that's not a mountaintop, and what does he see in this valley? He sees, Ezekiel sees, death. And so in verse 2, God says, walk around. Walk around. I'm going to lead you around them. I want you to carefully examine this. Because when you tell people this, when you, when you tell them the vision, I want you to say, hey, listen, there wasn't just, you know, there weren't like bodies that were hiding underneath there somewhere that kind of jumped up. You look and you see how dead they are, how dead they are. And so this comes back, if you want to take, take a note and just look later on, this comes from Deuteronomy 28, 25. Deuteronomy 28, 25, Moses, through the Lord, promises, and he says, he says listen, if you disobey God will send conquering armies to come and conquer you. Your bodies will lie in the field and 
vultures and carrion birds will come and pick your bones dry and you will not be buried. And so this is, again, the promised destruction, the destruction, and now the aftermath of destruction is here in verse 2. And so then in verse 3, in verse 3 we get the extreme juxtaposition. The extreme juxtaposition of human effort versus God's mere words. All the great human effort versus God's words. The helplessness of human effort versus just the power of God's words. And so in humility and belief, Ezekiel replies back, Lord God, only you know. So in verse 4, now remember in verse 4, God has told Ezekiel earlier in the chapter, he said, hey, listen, prophesy out of the mountains. You prophesy out of the mountains. Prophesy out of the forests. Prophesy to the groves. Now prophesy to these dead bones, which is incredible because dead bones don't have ears. I don't know if you've felt your ear before, but there's no bones right here. You know, this is all cartilage. There's a hole in the side of your skull. And he says, prophesy to these bones, these inanimate things, and tell them to listen. And then the, in verse 5, we get this part where we've got to understand that there is power in God's word. Because God's word not only has life, but God's word gives life. Jesus says this in John 6, 63. He says, human effort accomplishes very little, little but the words that I am giving you are, are truth and life in and of themselves. And so Jesus, who is the word of God, is speaking the word of God. And now here we say, God's saying to Ezekiel, speak out my word that gives life, that brings life. You're going to hear this in Hebrews chapter 4. You'll also hear it in 1 Peter chapter 1, that God's word is life and it gives life. And so in verse 6, verse 6, God is saying, I'm going to take you from the farthest depths of death to real life. And realize that God delights in doing this. Right, God delights in doing this. What happens on, on the contest of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18? When Elijah is going against the prophets of Baal, what does he say to do to the altar? He says, douse it completely wet with water. Why? Because God delights in showing that things that are impossible for humans are nothing more than conquered by his word. And so he does this again because God delights in this. And so in verses 7 and 8, Ezekiel responds with obedience and he speaks. And what we see here is creation accomplished in recreation. But we also need to realize that this is creation just as the Lord does it. He doesn't take from the dirt of the ground, but creating ex nihilo, out of nothing, sinews, muscles, skin, covering, tendons, and this thing begins to happen. And all of a sudden you see what is called, it says an army, but actually the word is more of a well-ordered company, a well-ordered company of people. Then verse 9, we get this word that comes up in here again, and there's this fun, fun Hebrew word for you to realize and know. The word for wind, the word for spirit is the word ruach, and so you can get that good like... You know, ruach. And so he says, prophesy to the wind, prophesy to the spirit. Let the wind go and the call the wind. This is the same thing that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. And he says, all of us must be born of spirit and water. Just as the wind blows, so is the mysterious work of the spirit. And no one can pin it down or control it or tell it what to do. But then also in this, this prophecy of the wind, you get Genesis 2, 7. You realize that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, but he was lifeless until Genesis 2-7 when he breathed his 
ruach into him. And then Adam became alive in Genesis 2-7. The word and the spirit. And so you get this foretelling of the gospel. The word and the spirit is what we're born of. Romans chapter 8, going in all the way, starting in verses 12 and going through the end of the chapter. How does faith come? Faith comes from what? Hearing the word of God. And so then verse 10, because the word of God is living, the word of God gives life. Because the word of God is living, the word of God gives life. And he gives life to this great army, this great company, this great ordered set. And then the bones, are. this is this part in verse 11 where the people now respond. And God says, now listen, here's where the application of this comes. You're going to go back to the Israelites and they're going to say, we have lost all hope. We're like these bones. We've been forgotten. We've been cut off. And he says, listen. You're not, just, you're not just cut off, but you're also divided. And you think about the bones, they also represent Israel. They were a divided house. Judah and Israel were separate. They're together. The hip bone's not connected to the thigh bone. The knee bone's not connected to the patella bone. You know, all these kind of things. So he says, there is going to be coming a reunification. A promise of destruction has now been fulfilled, but now the promise of restoration is coming. And I'm going to have the final say. And so in verse 12, Ezekiel says Ezekiel has this God-given explanation to the people after the vision. And so he says, after this vision, he says, I know that you think you're just bones, but listen. Where you think death has had the final say over you, Israel, over you, my people, I will call you out of the grave and I will resurrect you. In the little apocalypse in Matthew, Matthew 24, 31, Jesus says this again. He says, and I will call out of the graves all of my people from the four corners of the earth and I will call them back to me. I will resurrect them. So Jesus is saying the same thing. And then we get to verse 13. Verse 13, he says, God is saying to Ezekiel, listen. To know the Lord means that you will not only know him as Messiah, but you will have life through his word. And we know then now this knowing in the Messiah comes when we know in what John says in chapter 1, that the word of God that went out to accomplish his desire was the word that became flesh in Christ. And then in verse 14, verse 14 is a reiteration of chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I'm not just going to give them life, but I'm going to renew their life. I'm not just going to give them life. I'm going to give them resurrected life. I'm not just going to give them life. They will be new creatures because my spirit will indwell them. And here now, thousands of years later, we stand saying, yes, Christ reigns. His word has spoken to me and has raised me out of the dead. And his spirit is within me. And I am the recipient of the blessings prophesied here in chapter 37 of Ezekiel. As Pastor Paul said, one of the reasons that this text is so familiar is that great spiritual. And uh, Dr. Peter, our music director, has written an arrangement of that for the choir to sing at the 11 traditional service. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. My part as a tenor sounds something like this. Dem bones, dem bones, dem bones, dem bones, dem bones. I got it down pat. Ready to go. So we're kind of the background for those. But, you know, why do we sing like an old song like that? Because this, this reminds us, why do people know this so well? And part of it is because it's been set to music, very memorable music. Do you realize the New Testament never refers to this story? That really surprised me. I had to think about that. Like, there's no direct reference to the Valley of Dry Bones. I can think of lots of places where I could tell Jesus like, I got a real great illustration for you, Jesus, on this point. And somehow he came up with his own that were even better. But the, the reason we know it is probably because of that song. It's also because for many people, this, uh, this passage 
was fulfilled in 20th century Israel in 1948, in May of 1948, when Israel became a nation. I'm so looking forward to, is, to going to Israel again next year. And the, part of it is I love when biblical stories just come to life. But there's also, I, I love seeing modern Israel. And I see what many people call the miracle of Israel that has happened over the last seven decades. It's phenomenal. And there were so many things that had to happen in order for Israel to become, have we got that picture up there? Uh, this is uh, modern Tel Aviv. But there are so many things that had to happen for modern Israel to come into being that, that were virtually, that was definitely improbable and virtually impossible. Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt had to die so that Harry Truman, who became the best friends to the Jews, would become president. Winston Churchill, who had led Britain through World War II, had to lose a parliamentary election so that somebody else could step in who was more friendly to Israel. The tragedies of the 20th century had to happen. If we hadn't had the Russian pogroms or persecutions that sent a lot of Jews over to America so that America would become Israel's best friend, whether conservative or liberal, if we hadn't had, honestly, the Holocaust with the sympathy that it generated for the Jewish people, there's so many things that had to happen. And if Turkey hadn't actually abandoned Palestine for 200 years and both people and land were just sort of ignored, and so there was basically a vacuum there so that the Jewish people could come home again. If all of that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have the wonders of modern Israel. And so the wonders of modern Israel include being leaders in today's world in technology and medicine and agriculture. Do you know they grow fish out in the desert in Israel? Like they have fish farms out in the middle of the desert. Like how do you do that? Who comes up with ideas like that? Israelis are ingenious and what they've done with their economy, their politics, they have the strongest military in the Middle East. You know how you know that? Because every one of their neighbors wants to uh, obliterate them and the fact that they're still there, they, they, the neighbors around them know Israel's really got, Israel's never lost a war in its 70 year history. So for a lot of people, Ezekiel 37 is really the dry bones of two and a half millennia of Israel's destruction coming back into uh, success and prosperity in the modern world. Well, is that what Ezekiel chapter 37 is all about? There are certainly those who argue that's exactly what it is. There are others who say that even that's not enough, that this is really the millennial kingdom that is prophesied here, that after Jesus comes back and sets up his reign on earth, then the whole world comes to life. And there are others who believe that we are the revitalization of Israel, that the church of Jesus Christ growing and expanding around the world is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Holy Spirit. So what is Ezekiel chapter 37 really about? Again, the New Testament, unfortunately, does not give us any clues. Like, I would love to tell you that this is how Paul or James or John used this to explain what it means. So we're kind of left to ourselves to figure out what exactly is Ezekiel chapter 37 about. So there's a powerful hint in the text itself in Ezekiel chapter 37. And the hint is in that Hebrew word that Pastor Paul almost pronounced correctly, all right? So what he missed is there are two things you have to do that are not English speaking in order to pronounce the word correctly. The first, you have to be able to roll your R's. And the second is you have to have that ach on the end of it. So it's not ruach, it's ruach. All right, you ready? One, two, three, ruach. 
All right, without me now, one, two, three. Ah, that wasn't bad at all. So that's a powerful word. It's used almost 400 times in the Old Testament. And in fact, synonyms for it are used even more, Old and New Testament. It's so important to this text, it actually occurs 10 times in 14 verses, and it's translated three different ways. Ruach is breath. So when, when uh, Ezekiel speaks to the bones and commands for breath to come into them, that's the word ruach. When it's also translated wind, and so when he speaks to the four winds and says to the four winds to come and fill these bones, that's the word ruach. And then in verse 1 and 14, the beginning and the end of the chapter, when he refers to the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit, that's the word ruach. So this is such a critical word, and it's, it's consistent all the way through Old and New Testament how powerful and important it is. And I don't have to know any more than that to know what's the point of this text. This text is about wind, it's about breath, and it's about spirit. So let me close with three brief applications based on those three ideas contained in the word ruach. First of all, there's the lesson of the wind. The lesson of the wind is never limit what God can do based on what you can see. Never ever limit what God can do based on what you can see. So in the text, Ezekiel is shown a valley of dry bones. When you came in, you, if you came in through the front door, you might have been somewhat shocked or horrified, as most of us would be to see dead bones. Those are fake, by the way, all right? They're not real out there. We didn't go dig up a skeleton in Oakwood Cemetery. All right, so, but it's shocking, it's appalling, and it should be, but imagine seeing an entire valley of bones that are so dead they're dry. It's one thing to resurrect a recently, you know, uh, a recent corpse. That's enough God right there, right? But then what about when all the flesh is gone, and what about the bones are dry? So what Ezekiel is asked is, can these bones live? Not can any bones live, can these bones live? And he turns the answer back over to the Lord and says, oh, you're the only one who knows. Well, the lesson of wind is that you can't always see what's real. And when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says to Nicodemus, you, the wind blows where it pleases, you hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so is everyone born of the Spirit. When you look around at a wasted life or a devastated relationship, or any impossible situation and you think to yourself, nothing can happen here, you need to remember the lesson of the wind, that God is at work in ways that are invisible to us. Reminds me of having a conversation with my son who is a, uh, humbly speaking, a brilliant oceanographer. Uh, one of his mentors told me, you may not know this, you wouldn't know this, but your son is one of the top three or four young oceanographers in the world. So I know my son like knows a lot of stuff about the ocean and how the physics of the ocean works. So we were out on the beach in Hawaii this past summer and, uh, and we we're playing with my little grandson and I asked Phil, like I, I thought he was not going to be able to answer my question. Phil, when Arlo gets old enough to ask you where do waves come from, what are you going to tell him? And I was thinking he'd say like, I'm sorry, Bob, but it's like, Dad, it's too complicated to explain to a little boy, you'll have to wait till he gets older. Instead, he said, wind. <laughs> okay, 
That's it. It's like there's wind all around us, and the wind is having powerful forces. And you don't see wind, but you see what wind does. And when you experience anything from a gentle breeze to a powerful storm, and you see the power of wind, it's a great reminder that there are invisible forces all around us, and you can never limit what God will do and can do by what you can see with your own physical eyes. There's so much more in any story, and that was the lesson from the wind. Secondly, the lesson from breath. Never, ever believe that death has the final word. I had a pastoral experience on Friday morning that in my four decades of ministry, I can't remember having had before. I have preached a lot of funerals. And I have ministered to a lot of families after I learned that someone died. But on Friday morning, I was asked to be the one to go tell our dear sister Lynn Beckham, who's herself in her 90s, to sit at her uh, beside her chair and say, Lynn, your daughter was in an accident last night, and she didn't survive. And there's something about that moment that grips me and was partly because I guess it was so new to me as a pastor. Like, there are probably others of you who have told someone, but in terms of as a pastor to tell someone, and I, I remember she, she, she cried out, oh no, and then she wept for a while, and then there was a time of silence, and I just let her sit in silence, and then she turned to me and she said, tell me it isn't so. And that is the reality of death when it hits us for every human being, for every death. Tell me it isn't so. And if I could paraphrase that and extend it into our moment here, tell me it's not the last word. And it isn't. And Genesis 2-7 with the very first human being says... And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. And the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, is that we know that Ezekiel 37 was just a vision, and it was just a resuscitation. And one of the reasons we know it was just a vision is because there wasn't an army that went and conquered somebody. Like, what happened to all those people when they came back from the, you know, like, no, it was a vision that Ezekiel saw, but it was a vision that previews the great resurrection of the dead. And the resurrection is only hinted at in the Old Testament. It is powerful in the New Testament as our great hope that death never, in God's economy, in God's world, in God's plan, death never has the last word. So who is it that you're missing today? I always go to my dad, the closest person to me who's passed away. And who is it that you go to at this moment? And just remind yourself that by the grace of God, through the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, death never has the final word, ever. And that's a message of the breath from Ezekiel chapter 37. And then there's the message of the Spirit, that God's promise is direct and personal accessibility. Let me unpack that for a moment. God's promise is direct and personal accessibility. The prophets, including Ezekiel in that passage that uh, Pastor Paul alluded to, the chapter before this one in chapter 36, talks about how uh, 
God's promises that the Spirit will be in you. I don't know what they thought about that. I don't know how they envisioned that. I don't know. You know, there are stories in the Old Testament about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson. And what does Samson do? You know, he kills a lion or he pulls down pillars. And Samson is like a weird character who's not one of my mentors, right? He, I don't want to be like Samson. And yet, by God's grace, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson. And most of the times when the Spirit of the Lord comes on somebody in the Old Testament, it's dramatic, it's temporary, it's sometimes a little bit strange. And so when Ezekiel says, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to be in you, I'm not sure what people thought that would look like. And then along comes Jesus, and he says, the Spirit is a person, it's a he, and he will be in you in the same way that I personally am with you. He says to his disciples, I have to leave so that the Spirit of the Lord will actually live within you. You don't have to ask for him. You don't have to search for him. When you know Christ, the Spirit of the Lord is directly and personally accessible all the time. I love how in Luke chapter 11, when Jesus is teaching on the Lord's Prayer, uh, he talks about persistence in prayer, and then you get to the very end, and he says, and when you pray, you can absolutely know how much more will, when you ask, how much more will your Father in heaven, and you want him to say, give you whatever you ask for, which he says in other contexts. But in this context, he says, you can know that your Heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit when you pray. Like, I, I don't always know the answer to everybody's questions. I don't always know the way out of any trial or temptation, but I do know that Whatever I'm in, whether it's a moment of joy or a moment of struggle or a moment that I feel like I'm not very far, I'm, I'm a long way away from God and he's not listening to me, whether it's a moment of uh, dramatic, you know, pastoral responsibility that I wasn't expecting or whether it's a moment that's just a dry time in my life, the Holy Spirit is directly and person, personally accessible to me at any moment. He is God with us. He is God among us, and that is the promise, the word of the Spirit in Ezekiel chapter 37. This Spirit who makes all of this live is now in you, giving you the power and presence of God Almighty. What a blessing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, there are those who need today a reminder of the wind because what we see in front of us seems so difficult, so awful, so irreversible. But there's the wind, the ruach of God. And there are those among us who need the reminder of the breath because the experience of loss and death and loneliness is fresh and real and vivid. And they need the ruach of God, the breath of God, the reminder that life follows death by your grace. And there's not one of us who doesn't need the reminder of the Spirit of God, the ruach of God who lives inside of us and frees us and convicts us and motivates us and keeps drawing us back to your life and your word and your holiness. So we thank you for the promise of your spirit that we see fulfilled in our moment, in our time, in every day of our lives that we come and respond to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me? The confession of sin is printed in your bulletin. 
and also it'll be on the screen. Join me, please, as we confess our sins. Holy and Heavenly Father, I hear the words rebellion, defiance, and idolatry. I confess they describe my heart, my words, and my actions the way you see them. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. You are my only hope. By your life, death, and resurrection, I am known, loved, and forgiven. Holy Spirit, pierce my soul with my own unworthiness and open my eyes to my sins. Give me freedom that comes only when I admit my guilt before you. Amen. Just a moment for silent confession. Friends, it is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who resides within you and gives you the assurance that in Christ, God forgives your sins. Amen.